So let me ask a hypothetical question or a hypothetical situation. Imagine for a moment if there was a secret council that wanted to get together and their goal was to figure out a way that you could slow churches from growing. You want to decrease church growth, decrease people from coming to Christ, and at the same time while you're at it, let's figure out a way to slow down the transformation of followers of Jesus Christ. Let's say there was a group that wanted to do that, and not only they want to do those two things, but they also want to figure out how can you, they don't want anybody to figure out what they're doing. So you got a goal to decrease church growth, decrease people coming to Christ, decrease spiritual transformation in people, and make sure nobody figures out what you're doing. What would you suggest? What would be a good solution to try to see those three goals accomplished? Now, I think often we think maybe the best idea would be to uh, persecute Christians. Maybe if we did more persecution against Christians, we would see a decrease in commitment. But actually, you can look at some countries and you can actually find that persecuting Christians actually increases church growth. It increases people's commitments to Christ. But sometimes when you're under pressure, people find that they really seek God in a way that you would never expect or experience. So what would be the answer? What's the best way to stifle church participation? Well, since it is a series on the Holy Spirit, you probably know my answer. I think probably the best way would be to try as much as humanly possible to decrease the Holy Spirit's activity in churches. That if there is some way that we could, as human beings, interfere with the work of the Holy Spirit, that would probably be the best way to slow down transformation of people. If in churches, if we decided, hey, let, let's stop talking about the Holy Spirit. Let's stop teaching about the Holy Spirit. Let's stop recognizing the work of the Holy Spirit. Eventually, people would start to forget about the Holy Spirit. Eventually, they would stop expecting anything from the Holy Spirit, and eventually, they would stop asking God to fill them with the Holy Spirit. They would just start to settle with what they have and they wouldn't look for anything in addition. You might say to me, well, why don't you just suggest stop talking about God or Jesus? See, if I stopped talking about God or Jesus or if churches did that, people would notice that very quickly. But if you stop talking about the Holy Spirit, a lot of people probably wouldn't even recognize that you've done that. You know, if we stopped talking about Jesus and, we didn't, and we, if I didn't celebrate Christmas this year, I think a lot of you would notice, but if we kind of skipped over Pentecost Sunday, some people probably wouldn't even notice. Or if we didn't talk about creation a few times a year, about what God did when he created the world, people would probably notice, but sometimes we don't even notice if we stop talking about the Holy Spirit. And to be honest, some people might even prefer that because sometimes when you talk about the Holy Spirit, people all go back to the time in their life where they saw some excessive use of the Holy Spirit or some things went wrong in church culture when too much emphasis was on the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of interesting that on one hand, if you eliminated the influence of the Holy Spirit, it would actually be incredibly devastating for churches. But it's interesting that something that you could easily stop noticing could have such devastating consequences. That on the one hand, the influence of the Holy Spirit is so powerful that if you withdrew it, it would be devastating for the churches. But yet at the same time, sometimes we're not even aware of all that the Holy Spirit is doing. 
And I think that's why I love this month of Scripture journaling. And, and just this, if you haven't done this, I would encourage you, maybe this isn't part of your rhythm of, of journaling, but maybe try it for a day or two. And I love Susie's advice last week saying, maybe do it a day or two. If you skip a few days, pick it up in a week or two. Because it is such a great idea to become more aware of what the Holy Spirit does. To become aware of how God is working in our lives and in ways that I think sometimes we forget. I'm so grateful that when Susie put this together, she put these little bullet points of, you know, you look at Monday, April 5, the Holy Spirit's our helper who dwells in us forever. Just to sit back and to, to journal that for a day. And then the Holy Spirit affirms our adoption. The Holy Spirit promotes peace and the Holy Spirit convicts us and the Holy Spirit's our intercessor. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and the Holy Spirit enables us to walk in unity. The Holy Spirit helps us to overcome fear. And that's just a few things. I mean, this, this could be a book right here. But it's the amazing things that God does in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of really remarkable. And if we eliminated the work of the Holy Spirit, we would all be devastated. Each and every one of us would be devastated if the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to pull out of your life and I'm going to stop doing all these things. Each of us would be devastated. And the thing is, if the Holy Spirit pulled out of our life, what is going to replace that presence of God in our life? Something's going to have to fill us. It's either the Holy Spirit or something else. And I think when you start thinking it that way, it does make you a little bit more cautious. If I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit, then what am I actually filled with? I think there's a lot of with things that we can be filled with, but I think so often if we are not filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to be filled with ourselves. That instead of God leading us and guiding us and doing all these things for us, then it means Jack has to step into the role of the Holy Spirit. Jack is going to have to be the one that's going to drive these things. Jack is going to have to be the one, and all of you understand what that's like. And that's just exhausting to think about that. Because after a while, what's ultimately going to have is this whole idea of expressive individualism is going to take over in our lives. And it's already taken over in our lives and it's taken over in our culture to a great degree. Some of you might not have heard the term, what is expressive individualism? This is a definition of expressive individualism particularly refers to the idea that in order to be fulfilled, in order to be an authentic person, in order to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly or perform publicly that which I feel I am inside. That's expressive individualism. Whatever I feel like on the inside, I got to do that. I have to act that out. And that's what happens when I replace the Holy Spirit. I have to lead things. You know, this isn't something new that's been happening in our culture. A columnist, David Brooks from the New York Times, wrote about this in 2011. I don't even think the man's a Christian, but he noticed this expressive individualism that was rising in our culture, and he wrote this landmark column, you know, 10 or so years ago. It's interesting, if you listen to a lot of pastors on podcasts, eventually one of them is going to refer to this article. It gets quoted all the time, and I like what he says. He says, and this is 10 years ago, he says, if you sample some of the commencement addresses being broadcast on C-SPAN these days, you see that many graduates are told to follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, 
Follow your dreams and find yourself. This is a litany of expressive individualism, which is still the dominant note in American culture. That's become our culture. You do whatever you want to do. And as, one, and as some are noticing now, that's just not happening in college campuses. That's now influenced churches. That's influenced Christian community where we think we need to express ourselves whatever way that we can do it. And as you all know, that's just dangerous. We're seeing that uh, people are replacing following God with just following themselves. And we're seeing even more and more people in church culture are even starting to question and re-question what we've held true for so many decades, the authority of the Word of God. And there's a lot of dangers to that. But it's also just exhausting. It's exhausting trying to replace the Holy Spirit with yourself. It's exhausting to think that you have to lead and guide and direct your own life. And I think we often wonder, well, how did this all happen? How did we happen that we have a society that is so focused on itself? There's probably a lot of different answers that I could give you, a lot of talk that we could do, probably a whole conference on it. But I just want to talk about how I think part of it is because we've rejected the Holy Spirit. But before I continue, I want to give you a one-sentence little summary of everything in the Scripture Journal. If you pare down everything of one a one-sentence, I like what Gordon Fee says in his book. He says, the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. God's empowering presence. That's kind of summarize everything on the list. And that's up for grabs right now if the Holy Spirit isn't appreciated or valued or expected in churches. God's empowering presence is up for grabs. And that's what's going to be taken out of church culture. It's exactly what's removed if we don't start appreciating the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And see, God's empowering presence, that's exactly what Satan always wants to remove. That's exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden. If he could separate Adam and Eve from God's empowering presence, then he would have a victory. And that's what he did that day when sin entered the world. And that keeps happening in our culture in different ways. I want to go back to the 1700s, I think, which was another very strategic plan that the enemy had, which was called the the Age of Enlightenment. So you might know that term, go back a few years into high school history. We talk about the age of enlightenment in the 1700s. That Some people say it's a 50-year span or it's a 100-year span where it was also called the age of reason. And during that, 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 that 100 years, 75-year period, you saw more and more philosophers in Europe kind of rise to places of a political power and of, of respect and esteem and people were listening to these philosophers when they talked about culture and they talked about reason and what we saw over time that these 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 philosophers and that led in europe and eventually influenced the americas they kind of came up with two things that were really emphasized number one reason was over superstition And prior to that, there was a lot of superstition, and some of the superstition needed to be weeded out, but it was reason over superstition, and then science over faith. And what actually emerged from the 1700s was just kind of the idea that we can figure everything out. You don't need the supernatural component. Actually, some people will say that it was during the 1700s that the words natural and supernatural emerged, 
that from our age of reasoning that we could start categorizing things as they were either natural or they were supernatural. Natural is things that you can explain by science and by reason. reason. And over time, more and more things got put in the natural category as things got taken out of the supernatural category. Because people started to say, well, we can explain that. There's logic behind it. We don't really need that Holy Spirit's influence anymore because we have reasoning over here. We have logic over here. So let's stick with what is real and tangible and that we can measure in a laboratory. And so you're seeing that emphasis just more and more let's explain everything away. I mean, think about it for a while. Why did they worship so many false gods in the Old Testament? There's gods for fertility. There's God for rain. See, some of it was because there's a lot of superstition. They didn't understand how fertility worked. They didn't understand pregnancy, how that happened. And there was things like rain. They didn't understand how rain happened. So they would seek either God or they would seek Baal. They had to find rain when they needed rain. And the age of reasoning comes in and starts to explain, well, there's logic behind why it rains. We can understand there's chemistry. There's the whole weather, weather weathermen do. <laughs> which is still mysterious. <laughs> but you know, there's logic behind it. So you don't need a God to ask for it to rain. Because if it's going to rain, the science is going to happen, pressure is going to happen. And so if you pray for rain and it does rain, well, that doesn't really mean God did it. There's science. Kind of the same thing with fertility and pregnancy. Well, there's a reason it happens and doesn't happen. And we so moved away, I think, in our culture to we can explain everything. And we fail to see the mystery we fail to see the supernatural presence of God as time goes on. There's a logical reason for every single thing. And I probably could just continue to go on about events that happen in history that just kind of deaden us to the expectation of the Holy Spirit in our life. But that's kind of beyond the scope of this message. Today I just want to talk about how do we live filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we walk away filled and feeling equipped by the Holy Spirit to do what God's called us to do? So I think there's two big questions that we have with the Holy Spirit. Is Number one, when did you get the Holy Spirit? And how do you get more of the Holy Spirit? So when did you get the Holy Spirit? See, we as a church, an evangelical church, well, it's very simple. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. You can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. He was your instrument of salvation. That's how this whole salvation started to work in your life, is when the Holy Spirit moved into your life and started to reveal to you who is God and who is Jesus. So you can't get saved without the Holy Spirit. I, I, love, this, I love this passage in Titus, Titus 3, verse 3 through 7. Titus is one of those books you kind of forget it's actually in the Bible because you don't go to it much, but it's such a, such a good little summary right here. I like this. Once we, once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed our sins giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us 
through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and he gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. That's just a good little summary of how we came to Christ. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians, and he says, but we all have been baptized into one body by the Spirit. And we all share the same Spirit. Then in Romans 8, verse 9, Paul says, but you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. But Paul just goes on. And I love these scriptures, the confidence that you do have the gift of the Holy Spirit when you became a follower of Jesus. Now, I do have to mention that there's parts in the body of Christ that, that believe that receiving the Holy Spirit is a two-part process. They refer to this as a baptism of the Holy Spirit, that maybe you found Jesus at the time of your salvation, then at a later date, you're going to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, in our church and most evangelical churches, you kind of believe that all happened at one time. But I want to talk about it because... I think we should kind of kind of know that because I think some of you might wonder, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? If you grew up in a mainline church, you may have never even heard the term baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that term actually started to come into place in probably about the 1800s with Charles Finley, who started the uh, Wesleyan denomination. See, when he started the Wesleyan denomination, he believed it was a two-part process, that you might come and surrender your life to Jesus, that at a, la that at a later date... When your sanctification process was complete, you would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then you'd receive the Holy Spirit. That's kind of what his denomination believed. That's kind of the holiness movement. And it always kind of strikes me interesting because I think, well, how did you receive your sanctification process without the Holy Spirit? You get that after that you kind of went through this process. But that's the way it was believed in, in the Methodist denomination. And then the holiness movement started out of the Methodist denomination, the same idea of this two-part process, that first you get Jesus, and at a later date you would get the Holy Spirit. Now also then in the 1900s, we saw some revivals started um, in California, which turned into a lot of the Pentecostal churches were birthed out of that revival. And denominations like the Assembly of God believe, too, that there's a two-part process to the Holy Spirit. You have a salvation date, and then later on you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. So you have some people in the body of Christ that do believe in this two-part process, and they do have some scripture that they would support it. They didn't just randomly think, oh, that's a good idea. Because you do see out throughout the book of Acts that um, the disciples would go and they would find people and they'd say to them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And then they would pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of where the idea came in of maybe it's a two-part process. However, in most evangelical churches, we look at those scriptures in the book of Acts and we can understand it this way, saying for some of those people, they were followers of Jesus before his death and a resurrection, before Pentecost, and that Holy Spirit wasn't available to them. So that was a time period where they were making sure that earlier followers of Jesus also knew about the Holy Spirit and knew about what God had done. So it wasn't something that was a precedence that would happen in the future, but for people that knew Jesus before his death and resurrection, and ultimately Pentecost Sunday. So in our church, in our culture, we do go with if you are saved, if you receive Jesus as your Lord, if you surrender to Jesus, you do have the Holy Spirit. But what Paul talks about in Ephesians is more filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want to talk about today. And then we're going to go back and read Ephesians 5 again, verses 18 to 21. 
where Paul says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your heart and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think when we read this little passage, we do have that question that pops up again. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? So first, let's try to understand that word filled. Because I think sometimes that trips us up. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, if I said to you, is your car filled with gas? You know you can read that thing in your car dashboard. Or if I said to you, is your glass filled with water? You can look at it and quickly determine. But how do you determine if your life is filled with the Holy Spirit? How do you measure that? We don't have a gauge or we can't visually see it. So I think it's helpful to look at some other definitions of the word filled. What else could you use? What are synonyms of the word filled that you could find in the Bible? See, to be filled with the Holy Spirit also means to be influenced by or to be greatly influenced by. Or some translations would say to be controlled by. The idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit or being influenced of the Holy Spirit is that it will affect every single part of you. That to be filled with the Holy Spirit means it will permeate your entire life, not just a little part of you, not just one part of your body, but your entire body. So the whole idea is when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart, it will start to influence every single part of you. It will influence how you spend your time, what you do with your talent, what you do with your money. It will influence every part of your life. And I know sometimes when you first come to Christ, it doesn't seem like it's that pervasive, but that's the goal over time that the Holy Spirit would take up more and more residence in your heart and in your life, and you would see it displayed in all areas of your life. And that's why Paul is kind of connecting it here to drinking getting drunk with wine. I think he's speaking to a crowd that probably did a little partying in their days, so he knew this would be a really good illustration to use. Because in that metaphor, it's pretty easy to understand. We understand what happens when you drink too much wine. It will influence every part of your life. It will influence the way you think. It will influence the way you act. It will influence the way you make decisions. It will influence the way you listen to things. It will influence the way that you see things. It will influence the way you understand things. Being alco- drinking a lot of alcohol greatly influences every part of your being. In the same way Paul is saying, filled with the Holy Spirit is going to influence every part of your life as well. Another thing that alcohol does is that it... Um, It removes your inhibitions. We see that where the Holy Spirit comes on you in a powerful way, in a good way, that it gives you new boldness, that it gives you new confidence. And the beautiful thing about when the Holy Spirit removes your inhibitions is you see people that you would not expect do the extraordinary things. A good example is Peter. Here, a couple or a few months before the book of Acts, here Peter denies Jesus three times. And what does Peter do after he's filled with the Holy Spirit? He's considered one of the best preachers of the New Testament. You see, in the book of Acts, he preaches sermons to large crowds, and you see dramatic results. Here, one day, this man's denying Jesus three times, and a couple few months later, he is one of the best preachers in the New Testament. 
And I love what it says in Acts 4, verse 13. It says, and people listening were astonished at the boldness of people filled with the Holy Spirit. People were astonished. We're not going to do this, but I think we could just stop right here and just say, let's meditate on that a while. That people would be astonished by the things you can do when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I wonder if we should start expecting that a little bit more. Their expectation in our lives should be increased a little bit. Maybe we put that word astonished into the natural category a little too much. Maybe we need to pull it out and say, wow, if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, which I already have the Holy Spirit, and I'm filled, but some people will be astonished by the things that I do and say. And Peter's not the only one. And in uh, Acts 7, it talks about Stephen, the same thing. He preached with incredible boldness. So I love this metaphor about being filled with the Holy Spirit and the comparison to being drunk with wine, but every metaphor after a while is going to break down and it's not going to be work. Eventually it's going to stop a little bit. For example, alcohol does change a person's perception by deadening them to reality. And the Holy Spirit's not going to do that in your life kind of numb you to the reality of the situation or, or if you're in a tough situation, just give me more of the Holy Spirit, just kind of numb me up like a good strong drink would do. Instead, the Holy Spirit awakens us to the reality, a different reality, a different dimension. It awakens us up to seeing the peace of God, the transforming power of God. And the second thing is that Receiving the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit is not about losing your mind or losing control of your life. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, he tells us all about doing things in proper and good order. That even though the Holy Spirit comes into our life with power and boldness, that we can still do them in an orderly fashion. So when are we filled with the Holy Spirit? As I said earlier, we see the Holy we, we we receive the Holy Spirit at our salvation. But how about these fillings of the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. What do you, how do you do about that? So the question is, how are we filled by the Holy Spirit? I think one of the first ways that we can easily do it is, well, we need to be praying. We need to be praying on a daily basis. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Let me overflow with your Holy Spirit. A simple prayer. I think the second way is, well, we need to read the Bible. We need to read the Bible. We need to participate in church and Bible studies in ways that we absorb more of the Bible because the Holy Spirit's the author of the Bible, so to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the Word of God. I don't think we can expect to be filled with the Holy Spirit if we never read the Bible. I don't think that's going to happen unless you're limited and you don't have the ability to do that. And the third way that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit is awareness. And that's why I love the scripture journaling so much because I think sometimes we've got to be really aware of what the Holy Spirit even does. So we start looking for it. We start expecting it. 
like Becky's poem we've been talking about. You cry out to God for these things and begging God to give you this, and it's like, I've already given that to you. You're asking me for something I've already done for you. That's why I think it's such a good idea to, to do scripture journaling on these topics to really understand deeply. We're going to talk about more of that at the end of my message. But I think a big question is, how do you know that you're filled with the Holy Spirit? How do you know that? Because there's not a barometer that I can easily read. Except Paul gives us a couple verses. He connects filling with the Holy Spirit to speaking to one another in hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melodies in your heart. Now, I don't think Paul is expecting that every time you get together as believers that you just sit down and sing, that if I go over to your house, Chad, I'm just going to walk in the door singing. I don't think he's expecting that. You'd probably like me to do that. But I think what Paul is saying to you is, watch what comes out of your mouth. That will tell you if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's going to be your good indication of what comes out of your mouth. As well as I like how Paul says here too about, as I highlighted earlier in the message, about, about thanksgiving, about gratitude. If you're not ever expressing any gratitude, then it might make you wonder if you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That the amount of gratitude that you express could be a condition of the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit that you have inside of you. And I think that's a good way to measure what is coming out of your mouth. Are you encouraging people? Are, you, are the words that you're saying to other people praise to God? I mean, the way that I talk to Becky, would God be like, yeah, I like that? Or would he be like, wait, don't do that? I think that's a good indication if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Another way is to look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about in Galatians 2, or 5, verse 22 to 23, he says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. This is what the full of the Holy Spirit produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the question. Do you see that evident in your life? Maybe you don't. Well, that's okay. You just pray to God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Start reading in your Bible about joy or peace or patience. What you're lacking. And say, God, would you fill me in that area? Show me why I don't have that in my life. Another thing that we can do that can kind of limit the Holy Spirit in our life is two different ways. We can grieve the Holy Spirit or we can quench the Holy Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 4 or 30 says, and don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember he's identified you as your own guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Don't bring sorrow to God by the way you live your life. Don't do the things that God set you free from. That's just going to decrease the Holy Spirit in your life. That's going to decrease the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's where that whole self comes in, where you're trying to lead and guide and direct and do things. See, another thing that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, don't quench the Holy Spirit. That means don't say no to God. Don't do things that God's telling you not to do. Don't do those things and don't disobey God. So it's two things that we can easily do in our life when we, even when we just entertain sin a little bit. We start decreasing that flow of the Holy Spirit in our life. 
So Paul just gives those simple instructions. Watch what comes out of your mouth. Watch how you treat people. Watch your gratitude. That'll be an indication of the Holy Spirit in your life. But if there's one thing that I want to take away from this message or this series, it's probably just the awareness of what the Holy Spirit is actually doing that sometimes I think we totally miss. Because we, it's easy to live in the age of reason where we can understand everything through logic or science. I love this. In, in, there's a book by uh, J.C. Ryle that he wrote 100 years ago. It's this book on holiness. And the last chapter of the book is called Christ is All. And the whole chapter is about the sufficiency of Christ. And it's interesting when you read a book that's 100 years old and you're like, okay, maybe the, Engl- maybe the, lang- the English seems a little dated, but when you read it, you're like, you would think it was written last week because it's so relevant for that culture as it is for the culture today. And you can see this is a, just a problem that we just continue to have. And, and the whole last chapter is on the all-sufficiency of Christ. And I think it's a, it's a whole point that he points out as a book that the big problem that we have is we really don't think that, God, that Christ is sufficient, that he really isn't the answer to all of our problems. And we think the same, and I think in this book you could say we don't believe in the all-sufficiency of the Holy Spirit, that we really sometimes don't think that the Holy Spirit is the answer to our problems or that the Holy Spirit's really going to do what he says he's going to do on all these 50 verses. Sometimes we don't believe that's actually going to happen. We doubt these verses. Sometimes we just don't even know they're there. But sometimes we don't believe in the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit that he really cares and he's really intimately concerned with every area of our life. and That he's always trying to lead us in God's perfect plan that he has for us. I love the story in 2 Kings. I'm going to read 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 14 through 17. I'm only just going to take a couple of the little verses to kind of make my last point. This is such a good little few verses to show how God is so much bigger than the reality that we can see. So it says, One night the king of Aram, which is part of Syria, sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround their city. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what do we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told them, for there are more on our side than are theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. This is such a beautiful story that happened in the Old Testament that Elisha, this famous prophet of God, is with his servant. And they wake up in the morning and his servant says to Elisha, this translation doesn't do it justice. This translation, he says, oh, sir, what do we do now? But the better, more detailed translations, he says, oh, no, we're dead. We're dead. We're defeated. There's nothing that we can do. And it's an amazing story because Elisha is looking at the exact same thing that his servant's looking at. And Elisha's response is, oh, don't fear. Don't worry about that. They're looking at the exact same thing. And one man's perception is, don't worry about that. And the other man's perception is, we're dead. 
And so what does Elisha say? He prays that his servant's eyes would be open so he would have an awareness of all that God is really doing behind the scenes. And that's so powerful that here one moment the servant thinks they're dead and the next moment he says, wow, there's angels with swords and there's chariots of fire. See, what happened was Elisha's servant, he didn't see the Syrian army smaller. He saw God's army as bigger than what he ever anticipated. God didn't have to decrease the size of that army. That army was real, and it was powerful, and they would have been dead. But God's army was so much bigger. That's why Elisha could say, don't fear, don't worry. Because their eyes were open, their eyes were open to have awareness, to see things as they really are, to see the supernatural, which is the reality. Now just one more time, in this scripture journaling plan on the Holy Spirit, is a way for our eyes to be open to see the reality of God's army is way bigger than the Syrian armies. This is a way to see chariots on fire. This is a way to see angels with swords. These scriptures on here is a way to see that God's army is way more powerful than the Syrian armies. This is a way that you can say, I don't fear. This is why Elisha wasn't worried. He did this scripture journaling thousands of years ago. <laughs> he was ahead of the curve. We want to be Elisha. I don't want to be that servant anymore that gets scared every time you look outside. It's scary right now. The world's still so chaotic. I was listening to a pastor this week kind of giving his impressions what he thinks is going to happen next for COVID. He said what he thinks is going to happen next is we're going to have a wave of grief that's going to hit our country. After things start calming down and after people start, you know, maybe the numbers go down and we get back to normal and we start to see some COVID behind us. He said he's concerned that they're going to have a big wave of grief because some people are going to say, you know what? I, I didn't get to go to that wedding. I didn't get to go to that funeral. I didn't get to go on that vacation. Oh yeah, now I got to remember the people that I love that did die and I never got to be with their family during that hard time. He anticipates that there's going to be a wave of grief that could happen. I kind of think that could happen. That maybe it's a delayed response and like finally we're on the other side, we're a little safer, I feel comfortable being with other people, that this wave of grief is going to happen. And that's where we as a church have to be prepared. 
that we as a church have to be prepared to help people in their grief and their discouragement and their sadness and their loneliness. That we have to be the people like Elisha that can walk along other people and say, no, you don't have to be afraid. And we can pray for them to have eyes to see the reality of the power of God. Instead of just saying, oh no, we're dead. I feel bad that a lot of people are going to experience a lot of grief, but I'm excited that maybe we'll have a lot of Elisha moments. And a lot of people will start seeing some chariots on fire. I think that's what we need to be praying for, is that God would move in a powerful way in our country, and is that people are grieving, that we, the church, are prepared. And so let's get ahead of this thing as a church. Let's know our scriptures on the Holy Spirit. Let's be filled with the Holy Spirit so when the time comes, we can be like Peter and Peter, people will say, can you believe what that person just did? I never expected them to do that. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power for what he's called you to do, people will be astonished. Let's get really astonished. Let's get really excited for what's going to happen. Let's get really prepared. So God, I thank you for today. And God, I think of the prayer of Elisha. That he simply said, oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. So Lord, I pray the same thing for every person listening to me. Oh Lord, would you open their eyes so we can see Open our eyes, Lord, so we can be aware of what you're already doing. Open our eyes so we can see the work of the Holy Spirit that has been happening that we might just not be aware of. God, open our eyes. And Lord, would you fill us all with your Holy Spirit? Lord, I ask for just greater awareness of your word, greater awareness of your promises, greater awareness of just the beauty in your word. Lord, I pray for anybody listening to me that has a hard time reading, that you would just encourage them and show them how to read in a way that they can do it. Lord, your word's spirit. Comprehension skills are no match for your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that we would all be encouraged and strengthened. And Lord, would you give us all a desire to really read your word out of joy and gladness. God, we do pray for that. God, we pray for every church in our city, Lord, that you would prepare us all Lord, may we be the church that can walk alongside people and say, you don't have to fear. That we can be the church of encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.